This is Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Primal Screen is about movies, from the ones on the big screen to the ones you stream. Hope you enjoy the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. again <laughs> hello and welcome to primal screen a triple r film criticism show and podcast i'm your host slicker than your average paul anthony nelson <laughs> <laughs> and that's meant, meant ironically everybody and joining me in the virtual studio are sally christie hello and flick ford hello so we're going to be doing the first of our primal screen director spotlights uh, tonight we'll be focusing on the films of Catherine Bigelow. Um, we'll be talking about her career and work, focusing on three of her films, the 1987 modern vampire western noir hybrid Near Dark, the beloved 1991 surfing bank robber action picture Point Break, and her last film to date, the True Life 2017 racial period crime drama Detroit. Now, before we jump in, I just wanted to remind you all that it is still April amnesty time for another four days here at, or three and a bit days here at Triple R. We are committed to being your station in isolation as ever, staying on air to keep you connected with fun talk and fine tunes during these bizarre times of coronavirus social restrictions. But we can't do it without you. Um, we know cash is tight and not everyone's going to be in a position to be able to support us. But if you can, please consider subscribing, renewing your subscription or donating to Triple R this April. And you can go in the draw for some amazing prizes. Um, the uptake on April Amnesty this year has been phenomenal, actually. I think we've, we've brought in like triple the amount of donors or something. It's been amazing. It's really heartwarming to yeah, know that. It's been yeah. quite incredible. Um, and particularly in this time, like, yeah, yeah, listeners have really pulled together and we couldn't be more thankful. So if you haven't subscribed, renewed your subscription or donated yet, and you're still able to do so, please jump on to rrr.org.au to subscribe or donate now. So let's, um, let's start with a few things you might not know about Catherine Bigelow. Oh, nice rhyming. <laughs> <laughs> it's, uh, I'm a poet and didn't know it. Uh, <laughs> so Catherine Bigelow originally started her career as a painter. Um, she even earned a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the San Francisco Arts Institute in the early 1970s. Um, when she, But there was a moment in around 1970 when she went to a double feature of The Wild Bunch and Mean Streets and discovered a whole new paradigm, a whole new way that film works on you. Um, she was particularly struck by The Wild Bunch and the sheer visceral power that that film, that film was capable of expressing. Um, so she went from there to she followed that interest to uh, master of fine arts in film at columbia university where she studied theory and criticism under susan sontag among others um 
And it's the first of her. She becomes a bit of a zealot um, in the 70s art world. Uh, that's sort of a first step. So she studies under Susan Sontag, who's like her mentor. Yeah, wow. Um, I didn't know that. That's yeah. Incredible. <laughs> it, it gets yeah. better. Yeah. Um, so she makes a graduate short at Columbia um, called The Setup, which is an extended fist fight between two men while two noted semioticians, uh, you know, uh, people that study semiotics, semioticians. <laughs> um, Sign readers. <laughs> provide a running commentary over the soundtrack deconstructing the fight that we're seeing, um, which begins her preoccupation with screen violence and masculine behaviour and digging beneath that behaviour to derive some sort of interior unspoken meaning. She's- they were really fighting, weren't they? I've heard that. I've heard that they that in her sh- initial short that they were really it was like a real sort of brawl that she was told this, them yeah go at it was mm. this with Gary Busey that's the rumor I haven't seen that confirmed <laughs> anywhere but I've seen a couple of sites say Gary Busey is one of the men which would I reckon be extraordinary. it is mm. well yeah yeah and and it's about the right time like he hadn't really mm. broken into movies yet and him you know sort of later turning up in Point Break is really nice. Um, so, and yeah, semiotics is something that also really interests her as well. And, um, she, um, sort of her art education sort of fed into that quite a bit in terms of, uh, layering things in messages and seeing what people take away from things. Um, and then, um, sort of putting that into a more, ex- and then finding film and going, oh, you can actually communicate this through an accessible form. Um, that many people can can kind of you know understand and it, mm. and it, and it sort of communicates those artistic concepts to a larger audience, which mm. she was really interested in doing. So once she grad, while he, she was studying at Columbia and then she graduated Columbia, she uh, kind of lived among the New York City art world in the nineteen seventies. Um, this is where it gets crazy. So she lived in an art studio arranged through the Whitney Museum because she won a sort of scholarship, basically in an old bank vault where she'd sleep and hide in the old bank vault as, like, gunshots were happening outside, you know, dirty old New York in the 70s. (laughs) She crashed in performance artist Vito uh, Akakonchi's loft with Julian Schnabel, palled around with Laurie Anderson and Andy Warhol. Wow. Was an actress in Lizzie Borden's feminist film Born in Flames, and she flipped houses with Philip Glass, the composer. (laughs) They bought and renovated houses. They flipped houses. That's in that. Yeah. How did that even come about? <laughs> That's incredible. <laughs> Catherine Bigelow and Philip Glass flipping houses. I yeah. can't. Well, the weird thing is apparently Jeremy Renner had a side career in flipping houses for years as well. So I'm that sure actually, him and Bigelow had a lot to talk about on the Hurt Locker set. That doesn't surprise <laughs> me. He looks like a man that does that sort of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> he looks very capable with his hands. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so Bigelow made her first uh, feature film, The Loveless, um, which was a punk-influenced throwback to 1950s biker movies and kind of juvenile delinquent movies, co-directing with future David Lynch disciple Monty Montgomery, who was very much involved in the original Twin Peaks. Um, and they made that over 1980-81. It wasn't released until 82. And it also marked Willem Dafoe's feature film debut. So, and it also starts a bit of a trend for Bigelow spotting actors early. Like, she's very much a a person who likes to get relative unknowns and put them in films Mm -hmm. to kind of not, uh, so they don't 
kind of the fame doesn't get in the way of the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because she, she's made she's made a lot of um, people's careers. Like we were talking about um, Jeremy Renner before, but he was pretty much unknown, wasn't he, before her he locker? popped up in character roles. I think he won some acclaim awards. Why is he played Jeffrey Dahmer in a telly movie? Oh, okay. But um, or was it Bundy? I'm now blanking. I'm sure it was Dharma. I'm sure someone will correct me. Um, one of the two <laughs> big ones. But, yeah, but that was sort of, in, as far as feature films, he hadn't really made that so much of an impact. Mm. So he was enough of an unknown to kind of put in this role and and have us believe that this guy's a real bomb tech. Um, so with, uh, with that in mind, with Catherine Bigelow's kind of incredible early life, um, now join us in the living room as we hit play on our. Oh, oh actually, no. Uh, let's start with a bit of a, a bit of a quote from from Catherine Bigelow first. I suppose the Loveless was sort of a, a non-narrative narrative. Mm-hmm. So that's how it translated itself. Because you're in the art world, you're not working with a narrative structure. You move right. into film, and it's all narrative. So I was trying to look at that interface, and I was looking at movies by Fassbender and Pasolini and Kenneth Anger, and not that they were necessarily working off the same ideas, but. Um, but they're very innovative, very innovative use of narrative, all of them. So it was American Narrative scene. and image and how it interfaces. Well, then I stumbled onto a, a midnight screening at the Bleecker Street Cinema of a double bill, Mean Streets and the Wild Bunch. And that was just this paradigm shift. Suddenly, there was this kind of wonderful physicality mm-hmm. that you could add to this kind of slightly more cerebral approach to film, at least that's where I was coming at it from, mm-hmm. coming from the art world. So then suddenly it became all very, um, I don't know, I suppose emotional and psychological, and mm-hmm. and and then then I began to embrace the narrative, and and I don't know, I, I suppose Wild Bunch is a game changer for virtually every filmmaker who sees it. So mm-hmm. <laughs> that's the thing you get from listening to interviews with Bigelow. She's ferociously intelligent. Mm. Um, in a way, like, you know, because there's, there's a lot of filmmakers that aren't quite so articulate or aren't yeah. quite, you know, or they're very kind of, you know, like me, very basic. <laughs> <laughs> or very much, I love this thing, I want to do this. Sorry, sir. Listening to her, her speak there with that clip where she's talking about how she's looking at Pasolini and anger and the way that they use narrative and um, put uh, imagery with that, it's really interesting. I would never have picked those two as an influence for her work. It's, yeah. it's quite amazing. Like, yeah, I would never, never have thought that because she but, seems she's quite traditional in lots of ways, not in every way. But um, yeah, yeah, that's that's pretty interesting. And and again, it fits with her art world background mm. that she'd be receptive to these and draw from this kind of large church yeah. of, of art house cinema because you know she's gone on to make these reasonably commercial, although. As you go through her career, she hasn't had that many box office hits. No, she hasn't. I was actually um, surprised at that. Uh, when I was kind of looking at her filmography before we came on air tonight, because you just have in your head that everything that she's done has been a huge success, but yeah. it certainly hasn't been, yeah. It's and more it- so been after the fact as well, like yes. less so about box office takings and more so that, you know, years down the track it's it's kind of built up some sort of resonance and, mm. and real longevity to it, which actually is is gives her more credit really. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, more than like oh, just hitting the zeitgeist at that time and the film's being forgotten. It's almost the opposite. Mm. So oh. the zeitgeist missed them and then years later they they take on this significance. Um, 
And something that stood out to me, and I'm sure we'll go into this in more depth over the next hour, but um, just the diversity of her work is really astonishing. Yeah. I, I've never, um, I've, you know, of course been familiar with her work for a long time, but it was just kind of, especially with the lineup we've got for tonight, it's really um, extraordinary, um, extraordinary broad range of genres that she covers. Yeah, just these three films alone, really, and mm. sort of build outside of that. It's it's quite impressive. So let's join us. Uh, so listeners, join us in the living room as we hit play on our first film of the night. I'm nervous. I would be too if I were you, but then again, I'm not you. <laughs> you know, your skin is as soft as a preacher's belly. You know that? Don't you want the beer? No, honey, the drink's on me. Near Dark from 1987 was Catherine Bigelow's second feature film as director, but her first solo effort. A Midwestern farm boy, Caleb, played by Adrian Pazdar, reluctantly becomes a member of the undead when a girl he meets, May, played by Jenny Wright, turns out to be part of a band of southern vampires who roam the highways in stolen cars. Sally, I'm tipping this has been a bit of a uh, bit of a favourite of yours over the years. <laughs> am, am I that easy to read? Really? <laughs> no, I do. I do love Near Dark. Um, also, just for the listeners, Sally is currently wearing a jumper with upside down uh, crucifixes on. <laughs> easy, Mark. From what I can see, <laughs> I know. Oh no, I'm too predictable. Got to mix it up a bit. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I do really love this film. It is, it, it is, I feel that it is a little bit overlooked. And like you were saying before, Flick, it's kind of, I guess, getting the momentum years down the track. I think The Lost Boys was released really like just before Near Dark was released, like maybe I believe two, it was two or something. Weeks. To wow, wow, two weeks. And you can see the kind of comparisons with this film and you can see why near dark would get lost next to the release of the lost boys um it's just like the family the vampire family that is in the lost boys is very you know keith sutherland jason patrick um very glamorous compared to the family that we see in near dark not as accessible um but just as compelling i think one thing that I really love about this film and the way that Bigelow has explored vampires in it is um, there's always this weird kind of class system with vampires where they're kind of wealthy and mm. in this they're not so much. And you can see that, again, would be compared to The Lost Boys because we have these kind of poor sort of teenagers but they don't look, I guess, so lower class that these vampires do in near dark um and i really enjoy that about this film i don't think it is explored so well in any other film where we kind of see what do they say that the zombies are hillbillies of the horror genre and um that vampires are the the elitists yeah they're like the aristocrats Yeah. yeah 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 so we see that kind of reversed here and i really like that and gee this movie is shot beautifully like Isn't the way it? Yeah. And I think we see that in all of her work. It um yeah, this is the first time that we've done a spotlight on a director and it's fun to kind of go, okay, I can see this playing through and I guess, you know, we'll talk about it as the night goes on. But yeah, th- this film is shot so beautifully, like everything her eye for action is incredible. Um 
then yeah, Bill Paxton in this film is just a riot. I just <laughs> feel like though. He's just um absolutely fantastic. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. This is an absolute joy to watch. I watched it this afternoon and um there's a real um I really like your point about um the class system that or the way in which they represent class in this film because you've really you've really nailed it. There is this wonderful um believability to it. I think the thing I liked the most about it was um the genre hybrid of this western um vampire film. And it's, it's such a classic western like yes. it, yeah that that kind of end sequence is wow it's phenomenal. Oh, it's um, remarkable. And I think that um, I actually really enjoyed the actors playing Caleb and May, the kind of lovers at the centre of this, um, Adrian Pazda and, and Jenny Wright. I, I thought that their relationship was very believable and considering a lot hinges on that relationship and it's very kind of, it was just these little moments and she really, Bigelow really allows for that to develop in a very kind of lazy way. It could almost be a bit of a like Western romance at the start, like a little teen mm. teen romance. And then it kind of goes into this, this darker, darker sort of um vampire storyline. But it doesn't ever um it doesn't ever go into the aesthetic of like the classic vampire films of, you know, as you were saying before, kind of them being presented as aristocrats. It really holds on to that wonderful rural imagery. And I yeah, because they don't have fangs. There's nothing. We don't, mm. they don't use the word vampire at all in this film either, I don't think. Yeah, that's, yeah, they don't. Yeah. It's mm. assumed that there's enough sort of, um, when, you know, social, um, what's the word I'm going for? I'm a bit sick today. I've just, just had my of- flu <laughs> shot. So <laughs> my, um, I'm wrapped in a blanket right now. Um, I, I, yeah, I just thought that there was a wonderful sense of um, kind of leaning into this very different way of communicating their life and actually if anything you get a sense of almost a road movie the way in which they move around and the transitory nature yeah. of their life and, and kind of a bit of the sadness to it I mean May is a really interesting character she is was very young well relatively young she'd be like in her early teens I'm guessing mm-hmm. when she was bitten and so she when she meets Caleb there's this sense of like finally meeting this person who she feels this affinity to for and there's a lot of um within the group of these vampires is sort of jealousy and also um this wonderful sense of temporal lo- longing almost um you know there's um I really enjoyed all the generational sides to it and there's a lot of humor in it as well yeah um and a grunginess and also the the violence in it is really quite well choreographed and I did have a few um shocked sort of gasps because I was um it's pretty vo- bloody it's mm. um it's, the bar uh, scene is just incredible yeah, isn't it? And I really liked the um the main characters. I thought that they I thought it was such an interesting pairing and, and even in relation to gen, um gender stereotypes. You know, Caleb is is kind of this just good country boy at the center, yeah, you know. Very soft. Yep. Yeah, and and mm. I loved his relationship with May because she presumably because they don't age, she's presumably a bit older and there's this strange kind of like um, almost maternalistic relationship when she's teaching and what it means to be a vampire, but it it just doesn't. It's such a different vampire film. I I loved this film. It was, yeah. it was excellent. It's the first time I've seen it. Oh, oh wow! Yeah, yeah, yeah I, It's uh, yeah, one of my. Um, I just think it's great. Yeah, I hope more people see it. it. And also the soundtrack, it's, Tangerine Dream. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Tangerine Dream score. And, yeah. and, and what an interesting. 
Oh, sorry, Paul. We Behind the bar scene, a quality John Parr track as well. And also the cramps in the bar. It's mm. got a great soundtrack. Yeah, and, and what an interesting pairing. So you have that kind of like um, punky rockabilly mm-hmm. sense, but then the synth goes in with this like yeah. Western yeah. imagery. Yep. It's really strange and so original. So, yeah, loved this. And and it's, uh, it's something that just occurred to me because um, there's a character in this film played really creepily by Joshua John Miller named Homer, who's a child who's actually an ancient vampire who was a child when he was turned and has this constant sort of longing and regret. Is that the first time we saw that in a film? Because I can't yeah. remember any examples before this. Because obviously, interview with the vampire it happens with the Kirsten Dunst character. Yes, yeah, isn't there a child vampire in The Lost Boys as well? Isn't there Laddie? Ah, uh, there might be, yeah. But I feel yeah. like he was kind of recently turned. Yeah, he, yeah, he is. And yeah. and the kind of the with Homer, it's more so that he has an adult sexuality and yes. experience in a child's body, which is a really interesting pairing, and and kind of leads to a lot of. It's usually just visually communicated, like he's sitting there playing Russian roulette with the two other men and. Um, smoking a cigarette and um, they kind of have a bit of a family dynamic though, don't they? Yeah, yeah, yeah the film this kind of makeshift family. I became yeah. fascinated with wondering where they came from, like where, you know, where like at what era they were turned because obviously Lance Henriksen's character intimates that he was uh, turned during He Fought for the South. Mm-hmm. And and a lot of Bill Paxton's character's patter suggests that maybe he was a cowboy in the Wild West. Uh, I became kind of fascinated with trying to work out when they, they were came all from. Turned. Yeah. And it's great that they don't ever give like a prescriptive backstory. It's just no. sort of little glimmers of it where you're like, yeah, the mannerisms or the way in which they act or you get little tidbits of it. But it's really, um, they're really, she's very um, clever with how the information is given to us and quite economical. Like it, it, the time flew past. I don't know how long it was. Was it an hour and a half? An hour and a half, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think that especially with, um, the sequence when uh, he Caleb is learning that he is going to have to kill somebody, and we're going to see these little um these little uh, with all the different members of the vampire family going to, you know, take their prey. But she only ever sort of drip feeds the information that we're getting there. We don't actually see anything happen. Mm. Um, we're only just given little tidbits, and we're left to make the rest up for ourselves, which is, I think, really interesting work. And yeah. she talks about she doesn't like backstory. She tries to avoid it whenever possible. Ah, that's interesting. Yeah, I I like that. There's a there's a, there's obviously she's fascinated with the juvenile delinquent um, sort of genre because it's like a second film in a row taking place in that milieu. But it also acts a, as a metaphor for drug addiction. Like it's very much he's the kid that falls in with the wrong crowd mm. and goes out to kind of get us you know get a hit and and like particularly in the relationship with the parents as well, like the the father mm. and the daughter. Um, looking for him and and mm. kind of you know trying to get him back, and it's very much that story of the family trying to find yeah. this drug addicted was, kid. Especially, that's um, yeah, really common thing, particularly with eighties vampire films, where we have that kind of drug reference. If it's either you know that or HIV was another big one that we saw in mm. the hunger of um vampirism being you know in place for that. But yeah, it does really look at that kind of um, drug use in teens really interestingly. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, I actually thought that um, there's a whole lot of heart as well to those interactions, particularly with his younger sister, Sarah, and how she kind of gets introduced in there. And she's kind of quite a feisty little character as well. Like I thought that each of the, each of the smaller roles are just as well fleshed out. Um, 
there's I feel like there's been a lot of thought into the pacing and how everything's going to fit into into one as well and the character design as well mm. I mean um we've got to move on to the next film mm. soon but I but I but I've got to say I like the fact that um there's this sort of expansive frames of kind of desolate late American West tableaus which between those vistas and where those take place and the characters and their histories all reflects to America's own history of violence. Mm. And, you know, it's the, it's the civil war, it's the wild West, the early 20th century South. It's this sort of history of bloodshed that America have had. It's, it's a fascinating, like for something that presents as this punky little, you know, genre movie, it's a fascinating film to unpack. Yeah. Um, I will say the resolution is the only bit that doesn't sit well with me. Um, just feels a little simplistic and pat in terms of both vampire law and drug addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the one thing that stops this film from being like truly capital G great, like pantheonic great to me. I think everything else about this film is stunning. And, and the fact, sorry. Oh, and I was going to say, I was like curled up in the fetal position while I was watching this film. So I was very happy with the ending. <laughs> it was comforting. <laughs> and also too, considering uh, Bigelow's, uh, Cameron, uh, James Cameron connection. In fact, they were friends at the time. They swapped cast members, like there's three cast members of Aliens in this, and the tr- the action scene with the truck at the end really made me think of The Terminator, which was also a big yeah. influence on Bigelow. Yeah, mm, absolutely. You can really see that. Actually. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so Near Dark is now streaming on SBS On Demand. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R on FM, digital, online, via the app. You're listening to Triple R with Flickford, Sally Christie, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. Before we jump into our next film, just another reminder that Triple R is currently having our April Amnesty subscription drive. If you're in a position to afford to support us, please consider digging deep as you can and and subscribing, renewing your subscription, or donating to Triple R. If you donate during April, you'll go into the draw for some amazing prizes to uh, subscribe or donate and get in the running please jump onto rrr.org.au so we're doing a uh, director spotlight tonight on primal screen on the films of Catherine bigelow uh we discussed 1987's near dark um we also mentioned for a listener who called in before amy we uh talked about her first short which was called the setup which she studied at uh, uh, did at Columbia University under the mentorship of Susan Sontag. So now join us as we hit play on our next film of the evening. The ex-presidents are surfers. 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 Whoa. <laughs> surfers. Whoa. Point Break from 1991 was the fourth feature film directed by Catherine Bigelow. Johnny Utah, (laughs) name, an undercover FBI agent new to the Bureau, played by Keanu Reeves, is tasked with investigating the identities of a group of masked LA bank robbers known as the ex-presidents. Utah's new FBI partner, the veteran agent Pappas, played by Gary Busey, believes that the members of the gang could be surfers. So Utah is sent undercover to the beach to learn to surf and insinuate himself into the California surfing subculture, where he meets and becomes fascinated by the charismatic surfer Bodie, played by Patrick Swayze. But as it becomes increasingly clear that Bodie's crew might be the ex-presidents, Utah must make a choice between his old and new lives. Flick. Did you uh, hang 10, Cowabunga Dude, bust a move with uh, <laughs> Point Break? <laughs> Just take it back? 
Yeah, well, no, I just got beached. <laughs> um, no, I um, so this is one of my one of my just comfort. We were talk- talking a few weeks ago about comfort films. This would be up there for one of my comfort films. I um, <laughs> I this is the film that we used to always go to um, put on the VHS um, in my family because it had that perfect combination of action and. Um, bit of surfing we're from the west coast so (laughs) that was a big thing but I I watched this when I was really young um so I it was probably a bit too adult for me but anyway uh I remember enjoying it a lot as a kid and it was so nice returning to it I actually taught this film uh for part of a, a course at uni called um sex sport and film which was a combination of gender studies and um sports films and uh, for that week, we talked mainly about the um, homoerotic tension between Bodie and Johnny Utah, which is palpable. <laughs> uh, there is so much homoeroticism in this film. I love it. It's um, And one scene where they're talking at the car and the music starts to come in and it's really romantic. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was um all for the romance this week with all of the these films. I was really like curled up in um near dark's romance and um and also point breaks, which is not um anything to do with the female lead um Tyler. It's all about Bodie and Johnny. So I um there's a lot to love in this film. There's um I rewatching it, uh it's been a while. I think it's been two years since I last watched it. Um I just was really focused in on the formal side of it and the way in which the the action of mainly the chase scenes and the uh, raids, police raids, and even the the um, skydiving scene. There's a real um, wonderful uh, muscularity to the to these scenes, and and like you really feel like you're in you're part of it. And um, I was looking into it, did a bit of research on like how exactly Bigelow created that, and she was using a pogo. Um, I've forgotten the name of it. A po- they call, I think they nicknamed it something like a pogo pulley. Do you know Paul? I feel like you're no, like, no, I don't know anything else. I know it's the first from she's a steady cam, but yeah, yeah so not pogo the, pulley. yeah, so especially that scene where. Um, uh Johnny Johnny is chasing um Bodie through the houses and um they're jumping over all of these um fences and it did make me laugh actually how many people just get like pushed to the side through <laughs> these car chases I'm <laughs> uh, sorry these um these chase scenes it's right. just like even someone who's like not even in the way just gets pushed um so there's a lot of rough and tumble in this film or a householder um, hits them with a broom yeah <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of kind of um, really obvious um, sort of um, little lines and stuff like that. Like um, the even the dynamic between Gary Busey's um, Pappas and who's like his his partner and um, Johnny. There's a lot of like I think I can't remember if it was um, was it him who says you're young, dumb, and full of cum. Or, yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Quarterback and, punk. Yeah, and there's this real kind of interesting um, framing of Keanu's Johnny Utah as as kind of this, uh, I would say, this kind of the object of the gaze mm. in this film. And um, I suppose mainly because I, I've sort of like focused in on it in that way, it was nice sort of seeing that those two layers to the film. I think there's a really interesting use of um, gender, like masculine and, and feminine sort of qualities and this beautiful kind of narrative of ca- this really charismatic leader. And I think Patrick Swayze, I mean, he's perfect in this role. And there's a, you kind of get a sense that the surfing community that um, 
Keanu's trying to like get into is quite aggressive and kind of very shut off. But, you know, Bodhi kind of offers him this wonderful um, hand into it. Anyway, I, I just thought it was like a, I really enjoyed this film. I can't say enough good things. <laughs> I think I think now if when I was re-watching this, I was like, I love Point Break. It's great fun. But I was like, Bodhi is now like that creepy older guy. <laughs> and now you look at it, you go, oh, God, I really don't want to he, go to him. He's like hanging out with people he that actually, are too young. And it also just feels like Keanu, Johnny Utah, is the shittest FBI agent <laughs> ever. Like you he know? just bungles everything. Everything. You'll yeah, love this. Right. You'll love this, Sal. But um, Bodhi <laughs> reminded me slightly of um, Tiger King with his like collection of young, attractive Creep. men. Exactly, like the creepy older guy. It's like, God, you should not be hanging out with him. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it is. It's a great fun film. It's you know, so one thing that I've always really loved about Point Break that I've taken away from it, and I did watch it quite young as well, flick um, with older brothers was the visuals from the bank robbery scenes. Mm. I think they're my favourites. The masks, so the ex-president's masks, mm. they just have left such an impact. And um, those scenes I just find to be completely striking. Like yes, I love them. I agree. They're yeah, iconic. they really, really have stayed with me. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was really fun to revisit this and just kind of go, God, Johnny Utah, the shittest FBI agent. <laughs> like really, just everything he touches turns to shit. <laughs> terrible and really it's, arrogant yeah yeah, yeah. I, I, it's it, this film was marketed as 100 percent pure adrenaline for me it's like 66.7 percent pure adrenaline i feel like there's a lot of bigelow films that are like two-thirds great and i feel like this is one of them um the the shots you don't mention and they're so easy to miss but some of my favorite so- shots in the movie in terms of that muscular muscularity and energy with the steady cam shots through the FBI offices early oh. in the film as mm-hmm. yeah. they're walking and talking, they're stunning. Like you look at what they're weaving throughout all these people and all these desks and all these things mm-hmm. and all these rooms, and they're they're absolutely stunning. Um, and it's it's arrestingly stylish from the jump, and it's at a piece with, but also kind of superior to that sort of post Tony Scott Simpson Bruckheimer. Yeah. action film look that defined the film's action movies from studios of this period. Um, Swayze's over-intensity is, like, really <laughs> off-putting but also kind of appropriate to, to, to Bodie because Bodie's like a cult leader. Yeah, like, I look at Bodie like a cult leader, like yes. David Koresh, you know. Yeah. So it, that sort of weird, like, older guy, you know, sort of intensity really fits. And same with Keanu. Like, I think him being a crap FBI agent, I think <laughs> so the, shit. Because he's basically a rookie who only became an FBI agent because his college football career went south. It blew his knee. And it's like, what do I do next? I'll become an FBI I'll agent. Be, yeah, yeah. And so it makes the fact that he's not Clary Starling mm. makes the casting of Keanu really good as well. Yeah, like, no, hey, like it's just, it's I didn't point. realize how terrible he was at everything, like his character, not Keanu, yeah. um, until I rewatched this a couple of nights ago. It was just like, yeah, every, he just bungles everything in this film. <laughs> And but he, like to the extreme, but he knows like, how to motivate Cell. He yeah, motivates he Pappas. Yeah, he, <laughs> he really knows. does. He, it's that coaching. It's it's you yeah. know he's, he, football addresses. <laughs> um, I also love his relationship with Busey as well. I think it, a, a lot's said about the chemistry between Reeves and and Swayze, but I think the chemistry between Reeves and Busey is great. Mm. This might be the last truly 
terrific Gary Busey performance as well. Um, this was before, because of course, the next year Busey would fall off his bike and injuries and got a brain injury, which sort of kind of affected him and his performances from here on. Um, as well as Bigelow's enduring fascination with masculine modes of violence and camaraderie, there's a, there's a lot. Bigelow often is really interested in this idea of chasing the rush, the ultimate high. Like Near Dark has it, The Hurt Locker has it, to a certain extent, Zero Dark 30 has it. Um, and so there's that sort of quality here too, as well. And characters struggling between duty and morality. Um, I think where this sort of falls apart, though, is the film's so expedient and so rushed. There's, it sets up everything in the first hour perfectly. There is no reason on God's green earth this film needs to be two hours long. No. And no, yet it, it is. Yeah, and it, it sort of hits the hour, t- hour 20 mark. You're like, wait, why are we still? And then by the time you're in your second <laughs> skydiving sequence, like this film should have ended 20 minutes ago. Yeah. And yeah. And it's actually got a sport, a real sports film vibe to it. I don't yeah, know like a Warren Ellis. Like, yeah. who's that? Got? Not Warren Ellis. It's that Warren Clark who does all the <laughs> skiing movies and all the extreme sports. It's yeah. a bit of that going on. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah it's uh, uh, Warren Miller. I can't remember the guy's name, but he makes all the skiing movies. I think it's Warren Miller. But yeah, so you sort of got this film that should be a tight 90, 100 minutes that sort of drags on for 100. I didn't like the the... And, and I like the fact that Bodhi was always kind of like non-violent and the fact that he had to be violent troubled him. And sort of when you get to the end and it's sort of this I'm implication. I'm not convinced by that. You're not convinced by that? I'm not, you think, I'm not convinced by you that. You think it's a bit of a pose? Yep, I do. I do. It's not interesting. Because that was one of the things at the end. It's like, oh, really? Like that gives us an easy out and it gives mm. Utah a bit of an easy out. But yeah. but maybe you're right. Maybe he's, you know, a latent psycho all along. Yeah. He's still like orchestrating it as well. Like, let's not, yeah. you know. Yeah, I'm, I'm not convinced. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, there's a, and I like. Lastly, um, also, you know, both real Australian and fake Australian at the end is oh, hilarious. Why do they do that? Like, it you've got Peter so Phelps. Much. Why don't you just hire another one? You know, yeah. <laughs> let's get another one. <laughs> and they could have like, even if they added it in afterwards, they could have just. Called an Australian. Any Australian could have said that. No, it's like, no, literally, let's get Heinrich from Die Hard. Um, but, and this also feels like um, Bigelow take, getting the opportunity to lampoon all the stuff that she's obsessed with in films. You know, sort of like these overgrown man children shouting at each other and sweatling, sweatily wrestling as while spouting their ersatz philosophies to nameless mobile women whom they seem barely interested in. Yeah. <laughs> and that Laurie Petty's character, and, and Laurie Petty makes a bit of an, uh, an impression in this film too. Yeah, she's really she, good in that. She's kind of the female conscience. Like she's, you, you notice her. She believes in the surf and the power of the surf. But when the guys go off on their little rant, she's always rolling her eyes and kind of going, this is bullshit. Yeah. Um, mm. She clearly sees through their nonsense, which, mm. is, which mm. is interesting as well and not a perspective you may have gotten with a male director. And she's very wary of Bodhi. Yeah. You know. Knew mm. when to get out. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, um, Point Break. I think yeah, I think it's very enjoyable, but God, it's a good twenty to thirty minutes too long. <laughs> Point Break is now available only to buy, not to rent, on uh, YouTube Movies, iTunes, and Google Play. You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R. Triple R.
You're listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. The final film we'll be reviewing tonight. Hit the clip. You think we're bluffing? This is Detroit. We don't bluff. Detroit from 2017 is the 10th and latest feature film directed by Catherine Bigelow. Telling one of the most terrifying true stories that occurred during the civil unrest that rocked Detroit in the summer of 67. Amidst the chaos of the Detroit Rebellion, with the city under curfew and, and as on-edge police and the Michigan National Guard patrolled the streets, a group of African-American men and two Caucasian women were rounded up by police at the Algiers Hotel and held for questioning for suspected sniper fire. By the end of the night, three young African-American men had been murdered. 50 years after the events of July 25th, 1967, the question remains, what happened at the motel? Uh, so am I right in understanding this is the first time we've all seen this? Yeah. No. So I was, oh, oh, Flick, you sorry. had seen it before? Yeah. I actually saw this when it came out at the cinema. Oh, so, wow. But I haven't seen it since then. So, yeah. So what yes, did you think upon rewatch? Well, it's interesting. When I first saw it at the cinema, I wasn't that... I remember being moved by it, but I think it was just a really good um, week of films where it didn't stand out because I'd watched, I was watching so many other things that week and I don't remember being like, it didn't stick with me. So I'd actually forgotten that I'd watched it. And then I saw it and I was like, oh, of course I remember this. Like it's very, it's very, it's got a, especially the opening credits are really distinct. So um, it was nice revisiting it actually. There's a lot, it's one of those films that had some, for whatever reason, been put to the wayside and went, it's nice to return to it and kind of, um, yeah, just get reminded of just the, um, as we were saying this earlier in the hour, about the um, diversity of her work. It's really, this is, takes a completely different um, tact. I mean, you wouldn't believe that the director who made Point Break and Near Dark made this. Mm. It's really change of pace. I mean, there's some markers, of course, of Bigelow's style. Um, I think she's always had, her work has always been to some extent political, so it's um, not surprising in some ways that she tackled it. It did. I did wonder whether how uh, black audiences felt about her being the director to take this on. And I know that the I've got the name of the writer that she did this with, but Mark um, Ball. Yeah, and you know whether or not this is their story to tell. But it is a very powerful film. It's very emotive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this was the first time I had seen this was this afternoon. Um, and the same thing what you were saying, Flick, that really stood out was um, just, yeah, her amazing flexibility across so many different genres. I'm pretty unfamiliar with Catherine Bigelow's later work, to be honest. I haven't seen a lot of it. So I'm more familiar Oh, that's right, because you you kind of avoid war movies, don't you? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm more um, familiar with her early work. Uh, so this was kind of, I haven't seen The Hurt Locker. I haven't, yeah. So this was sort of the first really, you know, big, big film hers that I have seen since she won the Oscar. And, yeah, it was really phenomenal. Like, um, again, the the shooting of this movie is just really beautiful, quite breathtaking. Um, the story around it, I went into it not knowing a whole lot about this story. I knew it was to do with the civil rights movement, but I wasn't sure that it was this um, one particular aspect. So it was, you know, pretty fascinating and horrifying all at once. Um, the one thing that I did feel I didn't really connect on any major level with any of the characters, um, I don't know, they just felt 
they were all interesting, but I didn't feel any kind of major connection with any of them. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of my only criticism of this movie. Otherwise, it is really incredible to look at. But, yeah, that sort of connection for me wasn't there with the main characters in it. Interesting. I, I've found... Like, it's funny because that opening, as you said, Flick, before is really distinctive. It's over sort of these art images, um, so these painted images, and there's a ton of, like, title card exposition. And I was thinking, oh, no, we're in trouble here when the film needs four minutes of title cards to set up its situation. <laughs> but once it's and, – and then you're sort of thrown in this situation where you're sort of getting the temperature of what Detroit wasn't that like. It's the – you know, you get the incident that began the Detroit riots and then how that all happens, and then we gradually meet all of our characters – once they're all in the Algiers Hotel, I was hooked. And for the rest of the film, I think this is a seriously impressive movie. I, mm. it's, it's very much of a piece with her later work, her more journalistic, mm-hmm. kind of her and Mark Boll have this kind of brand of like, you know, sort of journalistic um, verite style kind of, you know, uh, with her, like a Zero Dark Thirty and this. Yeah. This is my, this is probably my favourite of the three. Mm. I, I mm. was so drawn into it. I, I found it absolutely terrifying. Um, And I felt like she was saying something with each character about race and about, you know, um, and, you know, you could, it's sad that we don't have so little time to talk about this film because there's Mm. so much to unpack, particularly in what each character kind of stands for. Actually, apparently the, oh, sorry, I was going to say the um, characters apparently um, were, each actor was asked what they, how they would respond how they feel that they would respond. And that was like, I suppose, like her way around making making sure that it's collaborative, but also yep. making sure that she's drawing upon that experience and not assuming authority over those circumstances, which I thought was really um, very powerful strategy and very effective. And they had lots of people that were involved in mm. the people were actually that were held, you know, interrogated that are still alive, had them on set and had them kind of contribute as well. God, how um, intense for them to have to go through and relive oh, that. Yeah. I, I mean, maybe they weren't there when they were actually filmed. But, like, but you know still, what I mean? When they, but even, it's sort of like, you know, yeah. That, um, to, you know, yeah, just have all that brought up again because it is horrific, like yeah. completely shocking. You and, know, the bit, yeah, oh, sorry, I was going to say, one of the things that really stood out for me was the way in which music um, is really just in a small few small scenes, but they're kind of very powerful. Like it's only for a few minutes, but just how how much that holds um, a place for for going through those struggles, and also just for remembering, and also just the the race relations within the genre as well, like who they're performing to, especially for mm. Motown. Well, Detroit is such a part of the fabric. Um, I'm sorry, Detroit. Music is such a part of Detroit's fabric. I mean, it's obviously where Motown is based. Mm. Um, so there's you know there's all that whole thing like every you know black kid that can sing who lives in Detroit wants to sing for Motown at that point and then it's like that sudden realization of who's buying these records who are, yeah. who are we singing to and and by the end and I like that this film both gives all sorts of perspectives and but also doesn't let white audiences off the hook and I thought that was a really mm-hmm. unique balance that a lot of films particularly by white filmmakers don't have like yeah. you get this amazing scene at the start with Will Poulter's character, um, Officer, um, um, oh, I can't remember the name, but oh, sort of yeah, the excellent. lead of the, um, uh, sorry, it's Officer Krauss. Um, his character is sort of the, you know, sort of the ringleader of these cops. He um, has this philosophy when he's driving around saying, we've failed these people, we've failed this community by not showing strong enough leadership. Mm-hmm. And that is one of the most scary, realistic 
depictions of a racist worldview that I've ever seen. It's not like, oh, we just hate these kids. It's like he genuinely thinks he's doing the right thing. Yeah. And I and think that, that is yeah. where it often comes from. And it's mm. that was terrifying. And the, and his performance is fantastic. I know, yeah. He's amazing. And also previously Bigelow's been criticized for, say, Zero Dark Thirty and Hurt Locker, and particularly Zero Dark Thirty, the way in which it's the scenes are shown as like torture porn-esque. And I think that it is really uncomfortable a lot of the scenes in Detroit, but it, it she backs it up. It's really it's very emotive and it's very anchored to um yeah, the emotions behind it. It's not, yeah, it's not I, I, in any no, way voyeuristic. I think if, if you're going to do look at content like this, like war and, you know, um, what she's looking at in Detroit, then, yeah, have have these grisly scenes. You can't flinch. People, if you yeah, flinch, you can't flinch away it. from this. Yep. That's, you know, this is you're brushing over things that are horrific and have happened. Show them. Yeah. Mm. And, and John Boyega's character as well, he, delivers a wonderful performance as well as this beautiful character is this security guard who's obviously you know trying his best to kind of be a pillar in his community and be a good role model for his community but also be respectful to the white community and maybe change the system from the inside and Mm. the way he's screwed over is such an interesting point as well it reminded me of a line from queen and slim where they're talking about having to be a good a good black person, like you have to always be amazing. Yeah. And I thought that he's a great representation excellent. of that. Have to be excellent. Yeah. And and he's a great representation of that. He does everything right, you know. Yeah. And but still, you still. know, that point when he ends up in jail, it's just like, oh, my heart just broke. Yeah. The, uh, yeah. I think Detroit is a super impressive movie and more people need to check it out. I think it's better than, I think its reputation is okay, but it just kind of sunk, like much like you said, Flick, sort of sunk yeah. without a trace. I think it deserves far better than that. I agree. So you've been listening to Primal Screen on Triple R with Sally Christie, Flick Ford, and myself, Paul Anthony Nelson. And I'll just mention too, Detroit is streaming. The film that I'm recommending, and I'll just brush over (laughs) how you can actually see it, um, is now streaming on SBS On Demand and is also available to rent or buy from iTunes. Um, on Primal Screen, we've done a bit of a director focus. Um, we're going to be doing a few of these in future, but this is our first one, and we've focused on the films of Catherine Bigelow. We discussed Near Dark, which is now streaming on SBS On Demand, Point Break, which is now available to buy on YouTube, iTunes, and Google Play, and Detroit, now streaming on SBS On Demand and available to buy or rent on iTunes. You can subscribe to the Primal Screen podcast via iTunes or wherever else you find your favourite podcasts. So next week, we're not sure uh, what we're going to present you. It's a surprise. Watch our social media. We'll be, we're on Facebook and we're, on, uh, we're now on Instagram as well. Um, check us out and we'll reveal what we're going to talk about next week. A huge thank you to Morty Osborne for editing the Primal Screen podcast. Killer Carl Chapman for panelling and providing producing assistance for our show. Thanks for listening to Primal Screen, a weekly radio show airing Monday evenings on Triple R. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast version and feel free to get in touch via the Primal Screen Facebook page or the Triple R website. 